Well, what a crazy week, huh? Man, the last, uh, I feel like the last 72 hours, there's just been a lot of information that's been coming uh, through email, text, the news. Um, we've got things that are happening globally, and then right here in our church, just things with, uh, uh, with Christina and their family. Um, it's been, on one hand, a blessing to be able to be there as a church and be an encouragement and be in prayer and to seek the church come together. Uh, but on the other hand, it's been kind of tiring and exhausting, right? Uh, if you really start thinking through the impact that this all has on people, uh, some of you don't know, you know, if you're going to be going to work tomorrow. If, well, some of you probably know that by now, but you don't know what this week looks like um, and uh, whether or not you're going to be home. Some of you are in the, the medical field, and uh, I even heard some of you say, well, if, if you get the virus, you'll be quarantined for a while. So that's, uh, you know, that, that's got to be interesting for your line of work. And um, boy, it just it's interesting to see what's happening. Um, and through it all, we know and we are certain that God is still in control. And none of this surprises him. He saw it coming. And we take comfort and rest in that. Um, but you're still left wondering, right? And, and we talked here a few weeks ago about anxiety, and then next week there's going to be a passage, and it's going to talk about the peace of God uh, that is in our hearts. And, and on one hand, there is always with us the simple fact that we are at peace with God. Like, that does not change. But when the world around us is just chaotic, it doesn't feel peaceful. So our relationship with Him is secure. We are forgiven, and we're in no way questioning our relationship with God. And we're going to talk about that more today as we look at some of the passages uh, that we're going to be looking at. But when the world around us seems to be crumbling and falling apart, and a lot of people have questions, uh, it certainly can feel at times like it's at, at, there's just unrest, I guess. Uh, how do we as Christians respond to that? And, and you've heard some things already stated today. You're going to see if, if you have questions, feel free at any time. That's why we're here is to encourage one another. But we want to be able to support and encourage each other. We want to be able to pray with each other. And we want to always be able to direct people back to a, a God who is, who is sovereign and in control. And, and he has it figured out. Um, one thing that we do think is important, God created us to be relational beings. And so some people may ask, well, why are we even meeting? We can go online, right? And yeah, we could, and we are. So hi to everybody at home. Glad you can meet us. And this is in no way directed at you, but I do want you to, to know that as relational beings, part of being together is what we need to be encouraged. And so we want to continue to do anything we can to encourage people to get together. I know at some point it may get worse and we may say, okay, we need to uh, shut the doors on a Sunday morning and just stream online. Uh, we'd like to still see life groups connect because that is one of the ways we connect as a church, regardless of, of any kind of virus that's floating around. And so uh, we encourage you to do that, to continue those relationships. Because we do know that as if, if we just kind of sit at home in front of a TV or a computer, we're going to start to lose those connections. And then there's going to be all kinds of other feelings and, and other things that, that happen to people as we get isolated. And so we encourage you as much as possible, if you feel comfortable, to, to participate in anything that is, is relational with your family and your family in Christ. And so that's why we keep meeting. Well, that's probably enough said about that. You guys are probably tired of hearing about that, right? 
seems like everywhere you go, that's what you hear about. So uh, one of the things, as, as I look into this passage and looking towards uh, forward into Romans, I, I have a confession. I get frustrated when I sit down with somebody and try to share the gospel, and they just, they just don't seem to get it. And I'll explain it this way. Maybe this will help you understand. But I can go through and I can, I can share that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that when he rose from the dead, he came back and he said, if you place your faith in me, you'll be forgiven of your sins and you'll have eternal life. You will be with me forever. I will be in a relationship with you. You will be in a relationship with me. I mean, there's, there's several ways, there's several scriptures we can go to to point all to that. But I can get done. I can explain that. I can go to scriptures and point that to people and then just ask a simple question. So, how, how are you saved? And a person will respond this way. Well, I know I need to do some good things. I know I need to to do some, some works. I know that I need to go to church. Maybe if I go to church, then, then God will like me better. Maybe if I give, God will like me better. Maybe if, if I help people, God will, will allow me into heaven. And I'm like, no. And I walk away discouraged because I'm like, I just told you what the salvation message is. Or another one will be maybe this question. Maybe you've tried this as well. You've you've laid the gospel out for people, and then you ask this question. If you were to die in the next 24 hours, and you were to go to heaven, and you were to stand in front of the judge, God, the judge, and, and you were to ask this question, what, or he were to ask you, what should I do? Why should I let you into heaven? How would you respond? And so you kind of pose that question to people, and maybe they say something very similar, like, well, if I, you know, I, I did okay, I went to church occasionally, I wasn't too mean to my parents and my kids or my wife, and, and, and so I just think that maybe you'll, you'll let me in because I was a pretty good guy. Like, no, that's not the gospel. And so you walk away frustrated. Like, why can't, and sometimes I internalize, like, why can't I explain it better, right? Why can't I make it clearer? And so uh, those are some of just the frustrations maybe you have, I have, and I think kind of lead into where we're going today. If you have questions while we're going through today's message, I just want to encourage you, feel free to text us those questions at that number, and we'll try to answer them here at the end, or we'll answer them on, uh, on Thursday for you uh, via um, video. And so you are welcome to text those to that number. Uh, we love those questions. I mean, I've enjoyed being able to interact with you as, as you write those in and be able to provide those answers for you. But going back to that question, why? Why do, not, why do some people just simply not understand the gospel? Here, I think, is the best answer for that. And we actually answered this this last week, but I wanted to start off with it because it was a great question. Why do some people not understand? Or we've even had the question, why do we as Christians sometimes make it sound uh, so complicated to be a follower of Christ? And so here, I wanted to give this to you. Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from the people who are perishing. Now, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe." 
They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we're not trying to create a whole new religion. We're not trying to create a new organization. We're simply preaching that Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, it's God who reveals. It's God who who helps people pull the blinders off of their eyes so they can see the gospel for what it is. So that they can know and have assurance that they are a follower of Jesus Christ, so that they can know and have assurance that they have peace with God. That even in troubled times, when it feels like the world is, is falling apart around them, they can have absolute peace that Jesus is still Lord, that God is still Father, that the Holy Spirit is still walking with us and working in us and making us more Christ-like. But for those who don't know, then they're, they're lacking that peace. We want to continue to share the gospel with people with people, so that hopefully, as we do and as we pray, God will reveal the truth so that the light goes off, and they're like, oh, now I understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you that your word is true. It's powerful. It impacts our hearts, our minds. Lord, help us to understand if there are any veils covering our eyes this morning for those who are here, those who are online, I pray that you'd pull those veils off, that your light would pierce through, that the word of God, which is sharper than a double-edged sword, would would go into the marrow in the hearts of people and would divide and would conquer, that people would know and understand that we're sinners and that we need forgiveness and that forgiveness is provided through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and life is provided through the resurrection. May we go from this place justified, declared righteous because of faith and faith alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we go. We're going to end our guilty portion of our Roman series. Next week, uh, we're going to start going into the peace part, Romans chapter 5. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit jealous. It's my favorite passage of Scripture, and it just so happened God in His sovereignty gave it to Pastor Luke. So um, there's a little bit of anger and bitterness over that, but it's directed, I, I'd have to say it's directed toward God. He's the one that, that organized it, so He orchestrated it. Um, but no, looking forward to that. Romans chapter 5, the beginning of it, is a fantastic passage, and uh, looking forward to hearing what God lays on his heart. But we're closing up Romans 4, and we have talked about Abraham for quite some time, and uh, we're going to kind of not finish it up, but we're going to talk about how he was, again, saved by faith and not by works. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. We've talked about this already, but I will go back a little bit and talk about the promise. The promise here was the covenant that God made, the agreement that God made with Abraham, that Abraham was going to continue to have descendants. And those descendants were going to be many. And those descendants would not only uh, have dominion over parts of the earth, but they would also spread into many nations. 
Okay, Abraham was going to be the father of one nation, Israel, and many other nations as well. That was the promise. Okay, that's what came through the word. So that if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath and, there, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. So what is he talking about in here? It's another way to say something that he's already said several times before. And what he's telling us is Abraham was saved before circumcision in that agreement there. He was saved back at least when he was leaving Haran because God calls him out of Haran and gives him the covenant at that point to say, as you go, you are going to have many descendants after you. And he believed and he followed God at that point. But as time went by and the nation of Israel developed, Moses came along and Moses was given the law. First he was given the Ten Commandments, then he was given other laws to follow suit, and then they were given laws about the sacrificial system and all those types of things. And the point that Paul is making is, look at the order here. Abraham was, was first called by faith to go and follow God. And then as time went by, he gave them a law so that they could see this holy God and by faith accept the same God that Abraham followed and then live to honor him. They recognize this God. They see this God. They see how holy and awesome he is, and then they follow him. And that was the order that things were supposed to happen. The problem is, as time goes by, and you know this, and I know this, that what we do is we tend to reverse those things. And we tend to say, here's the law. Now, let's go ahead and try to follow the law. And as we follow the law, then we'll discover who this God is. And so Paul says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You have faith first, and then you know the God. Faith in this God, who he is, who his holiness is, and how we can honor him and serve him as we grow in our faith and understanding of him. So something that we don't do anymore, of course, today, uh, a man and a woman, they find each other, they court, they date, however you want to call that, and then they come to a decision and they say, you know, we're, let's go ahead, we seem compatible, let's, let's get married. You probably don't use those words, but you know, you got the picture, right? It used to be, many, many years ago, and even in some cultures, where you'd have arranged marriages. Now, that's completely unacceptable to the American mind, right? In fact, I mean, there's movies about that and how terrible that is. I can't believe this prince has to have this arranged marriage with this princess, and you know, and then Hallmark blows it up or whatever, Right? <laughs> So you've got that whole storyline out there already. And Americans were like, oh, that is absolutely true. But go back to a time period or in cultures where it's still happening, where there's arranged marriage. What would happen? A man and a woman may have met each other before, may have not. And they may have gotten married without ever knowing each other. And then, then they learn about each other. So different from what we do, huh? But in a way, and it's not the exact same, so don't say I'm making it exactly across the board here, but in a way, when we come to faith in Christ, we hear about what he's done for us, that he's died on the cross and rose from the dead, and he forgives us our sins, we enter into a relationship with him, and then we grow to know him and love him and serve him and follow him. And that's the idea that is given to us in Scripture about how we grow in our faith um, the problem is we oftentimes want to flip it the other way around. 
And he warns us against that. And so there are three different doors I want to talk about as we approach. And you're going to see this a lot in faith and religions across the world. The first door that people will come to as they, they walk down a path or the, maybe the most uh, wide path leads to this door. And that is you do and then God will. A lot of religions are based on this. That if you do a certain amount of rules, follow a certain amount of rules, laws, and so forth, then God will grant you such and such. We live in an area where the Mormon church is very large, and, uh, and so we know this well. That is their approach. They have different layers of heaven. They have different rules that you would follow. And the better you do, the greater your chances to get into certain degrees of heaven and so forth. And it's based on merit. It's based on works. Jehovah's Witness, you might find some that come to your door at times, very much the same, based on works. You're going to do a certain amount of things, and once you accomplish those things, God will be pleased with you, and then he will let you into heaven. Uh, The Muslim faith, same thing, based on works. If you do so many decent things, good things, pray certain directions, pray so many times a day, those types of things, then God will be happy with you. And that ultimately leads to a lot of what we see in the terrorist movement, where they think to themselves, oh, if I do this and please God this way, if I please all of this way, that I'm going to be the highest, the highest reward. And so it leads them to do things like that. So if I do, then God will. That's door number one, and there are a lot of different faiths, a lot of religions that fall down that pathway. There's a second one. You don't, God won't. Okay, so here's another choice. You got that choice. Now let's go this way. And I've ran into this, and maybe you have too, where you start to talk to somebody and you're like, hey, would you like to know about God? I don't believe in God. Why don't you believe in God? Well, you know, something happened in the past. I don't like God. Or you'll hear this, and I've heard this more than once. Well, even if there is a God, I don't care what I'm planning to do. So I'm just going to go hang out with my buddies down in hell. We're going to play cards, drink, you know, all kind of fun stuff. I don't think you understand what hell is. It's a place where you receive God's wrath for the sins that we commit. But the idea is, well, if there isn't even a God, or I just won't even bother, then God won't bother with me. I'll just go my own path. God leaves me alone. You don't. God won't. And then the third path is more of a narrow path that's spoken of in Scripture, and it's the path that we teach and believe here, and that's God does and you receive. You walk through this more narrow door and you understand that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins. And you place your faith in the fact that he took God's wrath upon himself. And then that he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he came and said, here's my righteousness given to you. And if you receive my righteousness, then you'll be forgiven too and you'll have life eternal. God does and we receive. Those are three different doors, and I suppose you could add many more doors out there, but those are the different options that seem to be floating around mainly today. And you might look at those doors and ask, well, what door have I chosen? And I think that's a good question to be asking ourselves. Well, let's move forward. Romans 4.16. Now, we'll pick up verse 16 and go to the end, verse 25. This is why the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace. You know what grace is? Unmerited favor is one way that people define it. In, in some ways, it's, it's like you receive something you don't deserve. 
You might have heard of mercy as well. Mercy is when a discipline or punishment is withheld that you do deserve. So just simply in the, in the way that we raise children, for instance, if my children do something wrong and they deserve a punishment, but when I withhold that punishment from them, that's mercy. I'm showing mercy in that case. If they go through uh, the day and at nighttime they don't eat their vegetables and we pull out cake and ice cream and we give them cake and ice cream without eating their vegetables, that's mercy in our house. Oh, excuse me, that's grace. Sorry, I just flipped up. That's grace in our house. Okay? That's when we gave them a gift that they don't deserve. Okay? So grace and mercy, that's kind of how they're different. So in this case, he's saying we, we receive something we don't deserve, that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants. That word guarantee is telling us that God guarantees grace to those who have faith. Not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of Abraham's faith. Because Abraham had faith before the law. He is the father of us all, both Jews and Gentiles. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, not just the Gentiles. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He believed when God came and said, you're going to have a son. Now, he did some things before that that demonstrated that his faith was a little shaky. But when God came and said, you will have a son, and it will be with Sarah, it says he believed. And he was old, about 100 years. She was about 90 years at that point. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us, he'll go on to say. I just want to kind of bring you up to speed here. Abraham's life, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but if you weren't here or weren't able to listen, Abraham had an incredible story, and you could see his, life, his, his faith kind of growing, and it, it finished, or at least the story kind of finished, when he was about to go and sacrifice his son. And we're told in Hebrews that as he was going to sacrifice his son, he had faith because of God's promise that his son would rise back to life because God promised to fulfill his promise through Isaac, the son he was about to sacrifice. And so Abraham believed that. And that's something, I, I still to this day, I'm like, that's, that's really hard to have that kind of faith. But Abraham did. He did this and talked about it for us too. It'll be credited to us, now he's jumping forward, speaking to us here, it'll be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. 
When you go back and you look at that story, and you look at how Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, and he believed that God had raised him from the dead, it was a picture of what really was to happen in many years to come, and that was that God the Father would watch his son die upon the cross for our sins, and then three days later would rise from the dead. And when he rises from the dead, he brings justification to all people who place their faith in him. That's what he's talking about here when he says he was delivered up for our trespass. And we talk a lot about that, where Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, the things that we do that are wrong and that are against a holy God. He dies on the cross for our sins, but it doesn't stop there. This is such an essential part to the gospel message. People need to know this. People need to understand this, that Jesus is not dead today. He is alive. He has risen from the dead, and he came back to give us his righteousness. That's the part that we cannot skip out on. That's how people are justified. We are not justified by our own works. We are justified by the work of Jesus Christ. And when he came back to life, he came and he said to anybody who would believe, you can have my righteousness. I was perfect on, heaven, on earth. And I, I, I was a propitiation, is what the scripture calls it. I was a, an atoning sacrifice. My life was an atoning sacrifice for you. And now he gives him self to us and says, if you believe in me, you have my righteousness. That's kind of hard to believe, but that's what he's asking us to believe. The disciples believed it. For a while, they struggled with it. If you'd gone through starting point, you, you kind of heard about that, and uh, Andy Stanley makes a really strong point with that. He says, you know, a lot of people had forgotten. When Jesus died upon the cross, they'd given up. They said, oh, our Savior's gone. But then when they saw him rose, risen from the dead, they knew he really is who he claims to be. He is the Messiah. He is the one who forgives people from the dead. And so it's so important for us to also believe that he is risen and has given us life. There's a couple points I want to make. Promises are only as good as the person who makes them. You say a promise is only as good as the person who makes them. If I lean on my own promise to please God, I will fail and receive God's wrath. Have you ever made a promise and not kept it? You might have made a promise to your kids and you didn't keep that. You might have made a promise to your husband or your wife and you didn't keep that. You might have even made a promise to God and you didn't keep that. You might have even made a promise to yourself and you couldn't keep that. How many of you are doing really well on your New Year's resolution at this point? Right? Those are kind of like promises, right? The January 1st hits. I'm going to eat better this year. Seems to be one of the top things. Let's be honest. If we lean on our own promises to please God, we will fail. Here's the great hope. If I lean on God's promise... To bring life through Christ, I will exceed and escape God's wrath. I will not be successful if I lean on myself, but I will be successful if I lean on God's promise. If I trust, lean might be actually too soft of a word, trust God's promise. Depend upon God's promise. The promise to raise us to life is guaranteed in Christ. 
When you think about what Christ has done for us, we're told here it's a guarantee. Just like Abraham knew that God was going to guarantee his descendants and he was going to guarantee many nations would be blessed through him, we know that as Christ raises from the dead, our forgiveness, our stand before God is guaranteed because of what Christ has done and not what we do. If we believe the resurrection is true, we believe then God can save us, right? We believe God loves us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us that much. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves us. And he's demonstrated it to us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And if we believe the resurrection is true, we believe God can save us. And we believe God has the power then to conquer death. Here's an incredible passage. If you're ever feeling down, read this one. You can read even more verses around it, but look at what it says. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us victory. Do you have that kind of faith? We, we talk about guilt in this portion, and chapters 1, chapters 2, chapters 3 talk a lot about guilt and how we're guilty before God. It's true. In our, in our own sin, we are guilty, but we are moving into a whole portion where chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're moving into that section. Peace is what we're going to be focusing on. And as we transition into there, we have to understand that we need to be forgiven of the guilt. We no longer walk in guilt. We walk in this victory. Victory over guilt. You're not standing before God guilty anymore. Do you believe that? I hope so. Because it's true. And I'm pretty sure if, if I stood in the back and I told you, hey, I wanted, we had some great news this week, got a grant, uh, they, want, they gave us $50 million and they want us to hand it out to people, so every family member here is going to receive a million dollars as they walk out the door. Would you guys be excited about that? I just told you something more important than a million dollars. This is greater than any amount of money because this is eternal life. Eternal life. It's a whole lot more than just the 40, 50 years left that we might have. Some more, some less. We have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the final point and the big idea for today. Your strength to do good pales in comparison to God's strength to make dead people alive. Right? My strength to do good pales in comparison to God's strength to make dead people alive. Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But verse 5, God made us alive together in Christ. Or verse 4, we are alive in Him because of the power of His resurrection. We are no longer walking in guilt 
We put off the old self. We put on the new self. We're walking in newness of life. We have been forgiven. We are at peace with God. And whatever's going on in the world around us, we are still at peace with God. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. We are still at peace with God. It doesn't matter if the days are less and are numbered. We're still at peace with God. It doesn't matter if next week our life ends. We are still at peace with God. We are still at peace with him. And we still have eternal life. And nothing can take that away. Absolutely nothing. We get to that in chapter 8. And that's exciting as well. What are you doing now that you're alive in Christ? How do you respond? One, do you live like Jesus has conquered sin? Or do you live like sin has conquered you? He conquered sin. He gave us freedom. We don't have to live in in guilt anymore. Do you live like Jesus has conquered sin, or do you live like sin has conquered you? Hopefully you live like you're free. Yeah, I know we still struggle with sin. I know we still have difficulty as a time, but we, we live like we have conquered sin. We're over it. I, there's the everyday type things. So there's nine people in our household. That means we have, on any given day, 18 shoes to deal with. Okay? That doesn't seem, I know at first you're like, what's the big deal? But when you have like a, a narrow hallway that you walk into, and when kids come in and they throw their shoes off, and, and I'm guilty of this as well, I'll let you know, you know, throw your shoes off and put it in the pathway, you have about 10 feet of shoes, and you have to walk in and somehow not trip over them as you're walking through. Now you can pick your feet up more, but I kind of drag my feet, right? So as I'm walking through and there's all these shoes in front of me, I may trip over and I may go to fall. And when I do, the first thought into my head is not a holy thought. That might surprise you. Right? But I know that God is gracious. And I know that I'm a crazy human and I'm a sinful human. And that he forgives me in times like that. Those are everyday things that happen. There are other things that go through life, and and I mess up. You do too. But that sin has not conquered us, because we've been forgiven, and we live in a newness of life. Do you live like Jesus is far greater than sliced bread? I don't know why everybody compares everything to sliced bread, but it seems like that's the thing. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, is Jesus greater than sliced bread? I hope so. Hopefully he's the greatest thing in your life. Hopefully that's the way you live your life. He's the greatest thing ever. 20 years ago, I got married to Rebecca. Second greatest thing ever. Christ is still first. 19 years ago, we had our, well, almost 19. We had our first daughter. Hold her in my arms. Greatest thing. It's still not as great as knowing Christ. He's the greatest thing ever. And he needs to be pursued like he is. He needs to be loved and honored like he is. He's given himself for me and provided eternal life. He's done the same for you. Is that the way you're living? 
Now, last week, last thing. Do you love others because Jesus loves you? Are you loving others? I use text language on this one, sorry. I guess some of you guys are laughing like, why do you spell it C-U-Z? Because that's the way you text it. Come on. Do you love others because Jesus loves you? Or you could say, do you love others the way Jesus loves you? Um, Jesus has every right to be critical of the way I live life. He has every right to pick it apart. He has every right to withhold grace and mercy from me. He has every right to be impatient with me. But he's so good, he's so kind, he's so compassionate, he's so gracious and loving and gentle. And then he tells me, hey, as you've seen me love you, I want you to do that with other people. And I'm like, I just want you to keep loving me, Jesus. They said, no, go and do the same. I think it's tough. But that's the challenge. We need to love others because Jesus loves us. So we'll give you a couple minutes to respond. Think through those on your own, and then we'll come back. We'll answer questions uh, that we can. And then we'll also, just to kind of get things ready for it, I want to let you know we'll be, we'll be praying after the service. Anybody who's welcome can pray for the Cunninghams um, and Christina, and we'll give you a little bit of update, too, about what's going on there. It is time for our question and answer. Uh, if you didn't get that in yet, you can go ahead and text it in. Yeah. Um, we do have one that came in, and so I'm going to go ahead and just jump in here. Okay, sounds uh, good. Can you expand on how Satan controls the earth? And I think this is kind of the question uh, that they're, the tension they're dealing with. Um, if Satan controls the earth, then in what way does God control the world? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, unfortunately, it's not super clear, like how much... Uh, Satan is, is able to control without God's permission. We do know, at least like when you go and look at like Job, uh, just the interaction that God has with, with Satan there, that there are certain permissions that God gives to Satan in that case. And so uh, we also know in Scripture it calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And so that's a reference to him about how he, he has some dominion and some control. One thing I, I do like to remind people of, though, as far as Satan goes, he is limited in his knowledge. He is not like God, where he's omni, um, omniscient. Uh, that means that God is all-knowing. Uh, he is not all-present like God. So there is definitely a difference. God is present at all places at all times. Uh, Satan is not. So he is limited in those two things, which really limits Satan in a lot of ways. Uh, he does have demons, and it, it seems like there's interaction there as far as, as far as the spiritual warfare goes in people and so forth like that. But he is more limited than God, so God knows everything that's going on. God is still sovereign over everything, and somehow, just like you and I have a free will, somehow Satan, in the midst of God's sovereignty, has some ability to have decision-making and control, uh, yeah. but it's always, it's always limited to, to permissions that God gives him yeah. would be my answer for that. So, it was uh, one thing that came to my mind, and I don't know if you want to comment on this, was that uh, he doesn't forever have control 
of, right. of the earth either. There's going to come a day when uh, his, yeah. his ability to influ- influence and exert any kind of control will come to an end. Um, and you can read about it in Revelation, tw- I believe it's chapters 20, 21, 22. It's an amazing thing to read about yeah. the very end. Um, and so, anyhow. Yeah. Well, uh, there's two things that happen. One, he's bound for a thousand years yeah. uh, later on. And that's uh, often known as the millennium where he is bound. And then, yeah, he'll be judged and thrown into the eternal lake of fire. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we did have another one come in. And uh, it says, why did God make salvation dependent on faith? Why not make Christ's sacrifice apply to all people, regardless of their belief? Um, I, I think because God is God and he makes the rules, and sometimes we just have to go with what he says. So uh, that's not always an easy answer. We'll get to that in Romans chapter 9. Um, I can give you a very practical answer that maybe can, um, can help you with that. I, I just don't know that it, it's one that I can necessarily turn to scripturally. So if you... I'll just put it this way. If you gave your son to die for the sins of everybody else and people came along and rejected him, what would you do? God the Father gives his son. He gives it freely. He says, here it is. And if people reject it, he rejects them. And we do hear that in Scripture. If you reject me, I'll reject you. And, and I think that goes along with Scripture. Um, that's trying to put ourselves in God's minds. I, I don't have that, like a scripture verse for that. But yeah. to me, that kind of helps me practically think through it at times. Like, sure. yeah, as a, as a father, I would probably not like it if people rejected my son's gift. So, okay. Well, that is, uh, that's all of the questions we have for today. If you do have any more, go ahead and feel free to text those in, and uh, we will address them midweek. Um, and that'll be on live.involvedchurch.com or on our Facebook page. And so... That's it for today.